Hello, and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from A History of Human Emotion by Richard Firth Godbeer. It was first broadcast live on the 24th of November 2022. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Hello. Hello. I will imagine you applauding me because uh, that makes me feel good. See what I did there? Yeah. Right. So I'm going to begin with a bit of a gripe, a bit of a moan, a bit of a complaint. Uh, not about you lot. No, not at all. About a scientist by that goes by the name of Professor Paul Ekman. Some of you may have heard of him. Now, Professor Paul Ekman, I'll get into it a bit more, is a fabulous, fabulous emotion researcher. And about, ooh, it'll be six months, maybe a bit more now, he posted this, this image you can see here, the universality of emotions. And in this, he claimed that the history of emotions was uh, basically Watson's uh, theory of behaviorism, uh, Darwin's expression of emotions in man and animals, um, some people doing something in the late 1900s, him, and then a couple of people now. Very much the him. Um, and... That's kind of not true at all. Uh, emotions go back a long way. And a lot of what he does is, you know, he's not the only game in town. So that kind of annoyed me. But that's kind of the how the world sees emotions. They see it through this science of Paul Ekman. So I'm going to explain that. Now, the one thing he did get right is the study of emotions is currently booming. It certainly is. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do this in three parts. Um, I'm going to do discuss what we, people think emotions are and the three main arguments for what emotions are broadly. And then I'm going to look at a particular emotion that is uh, an example of what I've been talking about with what are emotions could show you how that works. And then I'm going to take that particular emotion and show how it influenced parts of history. Um, I hope being skeptics in the pub, you're all good Bible scholars because you're going to need to be. Not really. Anyway, so. Let me start with what are emotions. Now, the first argument is the Paul Ekman argument that there is a natural evolved basic emotions that all humans share. And we all have these same feelings and they evolved for evolutionary reasons. Um, this is Paul Ekman and he was brilliant. It's, uh, it's as simple as that. He still is brilliant. Um, and he when he was young, he sadly lost his mother. Now, that led him to want to understand the brain, understand trauma, understand sadness. And then one day he had a bit of an epiphany in the 60s and realized that the best way to understand trauma was not understanding people who've been through trauma, but trying to work out what a baseline is. What are emotions supposed to be? What's the sort of normal emotional range humans have? Uh, as he says here, the road to understanding human behavior and getting back to help people was not by looking at abnormal behavior, but at normal behavior. So that's where he went. Um, and he worked, he was kind of influenced by Charlie. Who is it? Charles Darwin. So Charles Darwin wrote his final book, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, my favorite for obvious reasons. And in that book, he wrote a lot of work about emotions. And one thing Charles Darwin was known for as he was putting this book together was going, inviting people to parties. And then he would 
he had photos taken of people who had mild electric shocks. And those mild electric shocks would put their face in a certain contortion. He'd ask people at these parties, what do you think that emotion is? What do you think that feeling is? Um, and then he'd make a note of it. And so there'd be pictures like this. Now, these aren't the original Darwin ones. If we've still got them at all, they're buried deep in the basement of Cambridge University Library. But these are by a man called Duchesne, a French photographer who replicated similar things. So you can see it's uh, an interesting technique there. This is Duchesne doing the job. Now, this particular picture, I've just given it away. I'd be interested until I flash the answer what you think this picture is. Because a lot of people will say that that picture, that sort of image is sadness or fear or I get lots and lots of answers. The most common answer at the time was suffering. Um, but as I always say, given as the man was getting electric shocks in his face, what other emotion would it be? So Sylvia Toms Tompkins was the supervisor of the great Paul Ekman back in the day. And he had gone around and he had tested people in Japan, in the USA, in the UK, in France, in lots of parts of the world. And he'd, shown them pictures of people pulling faces in the Darwin mould. And he had asked them what the those emotions were. They asked them questions more accurately and said things like, if somebody wipes feces down your arm, which of those faces are you going to pull, for example? And people would pick photos. And um, he found there were six. Six that they always came back to. Six particular basic emotions. Now, Engman said, this is all well and good, but all these people have, to quote him, seen I Love Lucy. They all understand that that face is that face. What we need is people who've not been touched by Western civilization. We need to do the same experiment, same pictures, same questions, or similar, culturally similar questions, and see what faces they pull. So he and his friend Wallace Friesen they went off to uh, Papua New Guinea. Um, I just interject that I once asked for the funding to go down a sewer in Hackney and that was turned down. So how you get the money to go to Papua New Guinea for three weeks, I have no idea, but they managed it. They went to Papua New Guinea and they found the Foray tribe. Now, the Foray tribe live about here, about if you can see that in Papua New Guinea, the little red dot. Um, that is where they live and they are famous for two reasons. Um, the first reason is that the, well, best way to put it is they got a particular disease that you get from eating brains. So uh, they were known for eating each other's brains and not just the brains of their enemies to consume their energy, but also their loved ones and relations, a little piece of the brain during their funerary services. And that would lead to them getting a disease. Um which wasn't very nice, but they're also known for this experiment. And so he took the same pictures and asked the same questions and did all that. And lo and behold, the same six emotions. And those six emotions are anger, fear, disgust, surprise, happiness, and sadness, or the various stages of realizing people have fired, uh, as I like to recall these pictures, because that's what they look like to me, because they're so exaggerated. But anyway, so these are the six basic emotions. Anyone who's seen Inside Out by Disney will recognize five of them. They didn't really do surprise because it looked too much like disgust, which also give you a clue as to one of the issues with this experiment. But still, 
there you go. Six emotions at problem solved. All humans always had six emotions that we evolved. And everything else is kind of a mixture of those, is the idea. Now, there are a lot of problems. I'll just go into a couple because over and over again, this uh, this idea, this idea has become the core of a lot of body language experts who look at people's faces and go, I know that they're lying. They don't know that they're lying. They absolutely don't. Or they will... It's even been used. Paul Ekman himself has trained American CIA and FBI operatives to see people's micro expressions, tiny little versions of these faces and know that they're lying. And it's catastrophic. They get it wrong all the time. So. That's one of the biggest problems. Another problem is that the 4A were not untouched by civilization. The reason we know about prion's disease is because people have been there previously. They knew about the encephalitis, the I can't say the word, the brain disease. Um, and there was a road there. Not a great road, but it was a road, so you could get a car to them. Um, there's even some suggestion that he had to pay money to the witch doctor of the foray to be allowed to do the experiment at all. Pay them in dollars, that is. So, you know, they may not have seen I Love Lucy, but they've been in contact with the West. Uh, the faces are exaggerated, and the translations have an issue. There are all sorts of issues in the translations. They don't quite match... You know, they're kind of leading questions often saying towards some of the faces. So it's not the greatest ever. Um, so what about the other idea? The other idea is that emotions are cultural, that we construct them within our cultures, that there aren't any basic evolved emotions. What evolved is the ability to construct emotions within cultures. And that's part of the in-group bonding system. It keeps people together. It's one of the things that makes one culture different to another, how our emotional landscapes behave. Now, one of the first people to suggest this was Margaret Mead. Now, you may notice there I've put Charles Darwin's The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals yet again. That's because both her, Mead and Ekman have written forwards to versions of that book. Because you can read it and get basic emotions in their faces, or also Darwin gets people from all over the world to send in reports about novel and unusual ways of expressing emotions that people have. So depending on how you read it, it depends which side of this argument you think Darwin was on. He was kind of on neither. He was just interested in these two different areas. So Margaret Mead is famous. Margaret Mead is most famous for going to... Uh, I'll get past that forward to go writing coming of age in Samoa. Now coming of age in Samoa, she went to an Island and she discovered what she thought was a different interpretation of what the West called love. That is that the young girls in Samoa would have a lot of sex, a lot of it before they got married, just lots of it. And so when she reported this to America in 1928, it went down a storm as you can imagine. No issues at all. None. No, she got people didn't like it. Uh, and there was a lot of issues with it. But nevertheless, it became a classic of anthropology. Um, it has been said since that they went back to the island and the girl said, oh, we're kind of having her on. You know, it was a joke. But still, nothing else she discovered. They got a different kind of humor. Um, the, the Samoans are in Tau, which is in American Samoa, because she, too, got a massive grant to go to a tropical island for three weeks, uh, for Malonga, for months. Um, but I can't get any money for Hackney. But anyway, so um, she discovered this other emotion. And she sort of started to believe that 
Darwin seeing these other emotions from all over the world meant there were definitely constructions. So there you see, to live with, as a girl with as many lovers as long as possible and to marry into one's own village. So when you did eventually marry, it's because you tried everyone else and this bloke was the best one. That was the idea, she claims. So many years later in the 1990s, a similar thing happened with someone else, Professor Catherine Lutz. Now, Professor Catherine Lutz, who is absolutely fantastic as well, uh, she got another advance and funding to go to another tropical island. This one uh, here is the Afaluk Atoll, uh, out in Micronesia. Uh, and it has the Afaluk people, who are, a lot of people go there to do anthropology, actually, because they are lovely, welcoming, kind people who you get a bond with very quickly and they welcome you in. And part of this is because of something that Catherine Lutz claims to have discovered, which is the emotion of Fego. Now, I'm going to try and explain Fego. If you read her entire work on this uh, book, this is about Afterlock, you will find that um, after 60,000 words, you still don't quite get it. But I'll do my best. So my colleague uh, Tiffany Watt-Smith describes it as a unique emotional concept that blurs the boundaries between compassion, sadness and love. It is the pity felt for someone in need, which compels us to care for them, but is also haunted by a strong sense that one day we will lose them. It's also got an element of spatial awareness to it, closeness. And it's a double closeness. Who you are close to in a familial sense, who's close to you in your family, you'll feel more fago for, but also people who are stood closest to you. As Lutz herself says, that during a funeral, people take turns coming forward, or rather being invited forward by the closest relatives, to cry in the immediate circle around the body. A careful choreographer's grief generally requires that those who are crying big or loudly and deeply, do so closer rather than further from the body. And those who are not crying move back from it. So how loud you cry is your distance, physical distance to that person. That's how Fago works. This is not uncommon. Funerals are a great way of looking at how emotional practices are different around the world. I lived in Tunisia for a while. In Tunisia, everybody who, if you go to the family of somebody who's had a bereavement, everybody through that door has to cry bigger than the person before. So the mum might weep a bit over, say, a lost son. And then the postman who delivered him a letter three weeks ago will come in through the door and starts absolutely bawling <laughs> their head off. And you can hear them from down the street. Um, it's just it's natural to them. It's not something they're pretending. It is a performance, but it's a performance that feels as natural to them as saying, I don't know, bless you after you see someone sneeze or something like that. It's, it's a part of culture. Another uh, plus for the cultural idea is that Professor Thomas Dixon, uh, my old supervisor, um, he discovered that emotion itself, the category that is emotion, only goes back to 1800 to um, a man called Thomas Brown. And Thomas Brown was a not the one who buried, if you know, a Thomas Brown from Norwich who buried things in pots and talked about dead bodies and being not that one, not the scary one. This Thomas Brown wanted to find an answer to the age old question of how you separate reason from emotion. People have been trying to do it for years. Uh, the Greeks have been trying to do it and they decided that this kind of uh, spiritual soul that was half reason, half emotion and so on. No one had quite done it, but 
but what Brown decided is that emotions are like they're the feelings you get that you don't have to think about. So they're a bit like seeing or hearing. If you hear something, you don't hear something go, did I hear something? What was that thing I heard? Oh, it was a doorbell. And you don't see something going, what's that thing I saw? Oh, it was a door. You just see the door and you hear the doorbell. In the same way, you just feel sad and you just feel happy. No reason necessary. That was his idea of emotion. It comes from an earlier concept that you find in people like Descartes of emotion, which when you have a passion, a feeling, you will sometimes it will move out of you, out from your heart to your body, to your actions. And that was an emotion, emotion outwards. So he took this and, and now it's the category of feelings, one of many categories of feelings that we've had them in the past. We've had sentiments. We've had affect. We've had even now we have all sorts of different categories of feelings. But emotions is the one that's become this kind of catch-all for a certain set. So he traced that history. And it was to do with secularization, which I can go into more later if you like, but it's great stuff. Right. This side also has problems. First, there are obviously similarities between all humans everywhere. Okay. If you go to the island, I can never remember its name, but there's an island off the coast of India where people keep trying to go and convert the islanders and keep getting killed very, very quickly. And you know those people are angry with you, by the way. They move towards you with massive, massive spears and bows and arrows. There's no ambiguity there. The emotional expression they are giving is universal. So there are clearly some kind of universal elements to feelings. So you can't dismiss that entirely like some of the hardcore anthropologists do. Um, and that goes to if emotions aren't evolved, why do we have them at all? What's the point of them? They've obviously got some kind of reason for feeling things. And that suggests an evolution, which suggests an old past. And there's also the matter of animal emotions. Mammals seem to have certain kinds of emotions. I've even recently been reading in research into insect emotions, like the idea that cockroaches are more revolted by us than we are of them, which is why they run away, because um, they smell us and think we're horrible. So that suggests an evolutionary element to all this. So that is the, the argument that's been going on broadly since Darwin, really. But there is a third way now. Now, you tend to find that the answer to any question in biology or psychology, when the debate is between nature and nurture, the answer is yes. And in this case, it's no different. So there's this new idea called psychological constructs. Assay new. It's been around since about 1994, but you know how science works. It's new to science. And the idea is the first clues came from something known as Schachter Singer's two-factor theory of emotion. What happened was, if anybody out there has ever done a psychology experiment, you'll know they tend to lie to you. If you haven't, you now know they tend to lie to you. Whatever you think the psychology experiment is for is not what it's for at all. It just isn't. In this case, what they did, roughly, is they got some people in and telling them they were going to test the effects of vitamin um, on vitamins on people's mood. And so they... Uh, injected them with vitamins and then got them to sit in the room and fill out a form about how they were feeling and do some little tests and fill out stuff and some paperwork. In one room, 
they put somebody very flirtatious. So if you were a, a male, they'd put a, an attractive young woman in with you who would flirt with you and she'd say, this is fantastic, isn't it? Oh, do I love working with science? And she'd be very, very flirtatious. In the other room, they would put somebody who kicked the table, said, I hate paperwork. What am I doing here? I'm wasting my time. This is ridiculous. I'm sick and tired of this. No. And what they would find is in the room with the flirtatious person, people would report that their palms started to sweat, that their hair started to stand up, that they felt butterflies in their stomach, and that they, when they checked, their pupils were dilating. And that's because they kind of fancied this person and they were getting, you know, well, horny. Um, and that's what they felt. In the other room, people would describe that their hands were getting sweaty, their hair was standing on end, uh, their, their heart rate was increasing, and when they checked, their pupils were dilating. And that's because they were getting really annoyed with this person. What they'd actually given them was neuroadrenaline, not vitamins. And the effect of that drug is to make your heart sweaty, your hair stand up on your arm, your heart rate to increase, and your pupils to dilate, amongst other things. So what they just realized is that often your context dictates what emotion you believe you're feeling when you read your body. It's not just in it's not just a stimulus response, as many neuroscientists even today like to think it's more complicated than that. So going on from there, Dr. James Russell, he decided to try and replicate Ekman's experiment, but he did it slightly differently. Now, how he, what he said is the way Ekman did it is he had a bunch of six pictures and some questions, and they were kind of forced. The questions kind of forced people to pick one of this narrow group of pictures, and that was the emotion. And that was a bit like saying to somebody, that red apple, what colour is it? If you wanted a blue butterfly, which one would you pick? You want some purple grapes, which picture would you pick? You want an eaten orange, which picture would you pick? So it's likened to colours. Instead, he did something slightly different. Now, in the case of colours, I'm going to go for Russian colours, but anything. These are Russian colours. These are the Russian main colours in the Russian language that you learn if you learn Russian. Now, two of those are a bit weird. Gulaboy and Sini. Now, towards their blue and blue. But to Russia and lots of other countries, actually, light blue and dark blue are pretty distinct. They think of them differently. Now, the best way to imagine this as an English speaker, a native English speaker, is pink. We have red and we have pink. And towards red and pink are distinct. But there are plenty of languages out there that just think of pink as being bright red. Of course it is. Um, and so it's that kind of thing. So when he did it with the pictures, what he did basically is he asked them questions and then had a massive number of photographs and told them to organise them themselves. No pressure of categories. Just take these pictures. Which ones of these pictures are similar emotions? Which ones of those are similar emotions? Which ones fit that question? Which ones fit that question? And he found that often the groups don't fit Ekman's model at all. People have different facial expressions. For example, in Japan, in fact, much of the of the east of the Far East and uh, Southeast Asia, there's an expression for fear that looks to westernized like confusion. If you don't believe me, go and watch any Kung Fu film and look at a face just before someone's about to copy. And you'll see that expression that kind of. It's natural, you know, it's, it's different. So 
He came up with this concept of core effect. He agreed that there must be something evolved and that there must be something on top of it. And core effect, to put simply, and I swear this next slide actually came from a scientific paper, not one by, by, by James, but one by somebody else. Basically, he came up with something called the two-dimensional, two-factor theory. Two-dimensional theory depends which paper you read. And it's this idea. Oh, you have two axes. One is arousal, how excited or unexcited you are. And the other is valence, how pleasant or unpleasant the feeling is. And different cultures will label, create a word for different things on that those two things so if you are feeling something very exciting and very pleasant you might get very you know that's that's joy or if it's very calm and very unpleasant that might be depression and everything in between in english lisa feldman barrett took this further and she started to develop you may have read her book some of you it's a great book uh, um how emotions are made and she came up with the theory of constructed emotion with james sorry that's going and her theory was, when she looked at brains, you couldn't really tell things apart in the way neuroscientists said. Um, and so she thought that instead what happens is when you feel a feeling, when you feel a core effect, your brain pulls in all sorts of information. The whole brain constructs something. It constructs how you're feeling. It, con it looks at your memory to remember what the context and the feeling in the past and what it means. It checks your language for a label for that feeling. It checks your upbringing and your culture for what that feeling means and how you're supposed to act. It's a huge hodgepodge of things. And all of that constitutes an emotion. Lots of feedback from the body as well. Without a body, you couldn't feel she believes and that's the constructed theory of emotion that is the third way um so for example here what emotion am i feeling in that picture if you can see that picture now most people who haven't seen this talk already say anger off the cuff that's anger but what i'm going to tell you is that was a moment when the incredibly rare and unusual event occurred in the universe called a sheffield wednesday goal and that was me reacting to it. So as you can see, now I've told you that, you go into your memory, you know what football is, you know what a goal is, you know what having a poor taste in football teams is, you know what how that kind of reaction is, and you know what that actually means. It's all constructed. You can read the emotion. And let's say I felt it the same way. So that is a constructed way. That is the way, in my opinion. So now I've got to that, let me talk more about one particular emotion. My book, which I'm plugging, of course, um, I go all over the world, do lots of emotions. I do China, Japan, India, USA, lots of things, some warrior women, some strange men and all everything in between. Um, and so but I'll pick up one. I'm just going to look at one for now. It's the one I'm most famous for. It's the one I studied. I did my PhD on this. I've published papers on this, all that kind of stuff. And I'm told by my colleagues that whenever they think of this emotion, they immediately think of me. Disgust. Now, disgust is fascinating. It's a gatekeeper moral emotion. We'll get that in a moment. Um, and the best theory for what disgust is, is a combination of construction and culture and basically core affect one of the best theories came from the late great professor valerie curtis now professor valerie curtis used to go and 
develop show not tell programs in parts of the world where diseases spread and they just didn't have a culture of hand washing she used to actually get the kids and she'd get two people with their hands full of unwrapped sweets and one of them would smear oil and stuff on his hands and grab the sweets and the other one would wash her hands with soap and water and they'd both go to the kids and say do you want some sweets and they'd all rush away from the guy and get the woman's sweets and the kids would learn that using soap and water is good and then teach their parents and it was fantastic she was absolutely brilliant anyway she came up with something called pathogen avoidance theory pat that was on purpose Uh, and the idea i'll not read all that is that when you see something you we've evolved the ability to sense when something might kill us might have a pathogen or a parasite in it and that is something that's why it tastes bad or smells bad or looks rotten all these things we've evolved this is core affect it's a powerful unpleasant sensation that comes mostly from taste and protecting us from things when that happens, um, there are nanopeptides involved. The most famous is probably oxytocin. Oxytocin is known as the love drug. When you have a lot of, when you are, have a belonging to someone, when you have a close relationship with someone, you're flooded with oxytocin. When someone disgusts you or something, the opposite happens. There's an oxytocin suppression. Another area that's quite interesting, but it's ongoing research, uh, is the insula. The insula we know lights up. Uh, light so i love that phrase but it is it is triggered when people see disgusting things like slime but also when people are morally disgusted by an action not everybody thinks disgust is a main powerful emotion professor jack panskev another guy we sadly lost didn't he wanted to know if we included disgust amongst these emotions then why not hunger is disgust not the opposite of hunger Hungary is a desire to consume food that will nourish us. Disgust is a desire to get away from food that will harm us. So, and curiously, the Greeks and the Romans and lots of other people thought that desire and what they called, I'll get to that more in a bit, but what they called aversion were opposites, in much the same way he's claiming here. I'll let you argue amongst yourself whether hunger is an emotion or not. That's not important now, but he didn't think it was. But animals, and he was into mammals, have different disgust tolerances. So here's a nice picture. I'll let you try and work out what that is. The dog, you won't see the dog tonight. That's my brother's dog, Molly. She's in Spain sunning it up because she can. That was something she brought to us all proud and happy while we were renovating a house. It's Ratto Van. It's a rat that was run over by a van. Uh, pretty disgusting. We picked it up thinking it was a stick. And when we realized what it was, it properly grossed us out. But she seems to really want it back, by the way, she's licking her chops. So pretty, yeah, mammals have a different level of tolerance. But I mentioned the insula seems to be affected by moral disgust as well. So what I'm going to do is you privately in the chat, I'll look at this later. But there is a test to see whether you are a good person or a bad person based on disgust. So I'm going to ask a few questions. I want you to say yes or nope or Y or an N in the chat. I can't see it, but do it anyway, because I'm going to look at it later. And these questions come from the disgust scale R test. So does this disgust you? You might, true or false, yes or no, you might be willing to try eating monkey meat under some circumstances. Okay. It would bother you to see a human hand preserved in a jar. 
Okay. It bothers you to hear. <coughs> hear someone clear a throat of mucus. You never let any part of your body touch the toilet seat in public restrooms, especially since COVID. Just no, no. Uh, create one of those little tissue barrier things. Anyway, it would bother you tremendously to touch a dead body. While you are walking through a tunnel under a railroad track, you smell urine. Your friend's pet cat, pet cat dies. You have to pick up the dead body with your bare hands. You see a man with his intestines exposed after an accident. And finally, as part of a sex education clash, you are required to inflate a new unlubricated condom using your mouth and you may not put it over your head afterwards. Now, this is very, very basic. The actual test has a scale. It's not just yes or no. It's zero to ten about how disgusted you are. And there's a lot more questions. If you want to know it, do it yourself. Go to yourmorals.org and find out whether you're good or bad. But the gist is that this research showed initially that if you are a far right person, you're generally more physically disgusted by things. And the theory was it's because it's a purity thing. It's a cleanliness thing. If you see someone who's not as right wing, as pure as you, you find them to be a an infection, an infection of society, infection of your culture, something that can damage things. So taken that, they decide to go to a more left leaning college and run it again. And guess what? If you're very, very, very far left, you're more disgusted by things as well. So goes the theory. So there's kind of an extreme in disgust when it comes to morals. We have found out since it's much more complicated than that, but it's a very, very interesting initial finding. We also discovered things like if you ask people to wear, to touch a garment of clothing that was owned by a uh, mass murderer, a serial killer, and then on the way out offered people either hand wipes or pens, those who touched the garment went for the hand wipes more often and those who hadn't went for the pens because a pen's a better thing. So, yeah, there is this kind of moral thing. We think we can even be infected by bad morals and need to wash it off our hands. So how does this affect history? What has this got to do with history? Well, this is how disgust or something like it shaped history. Now, it's not quite disgust. It's, that's the core of it. But as I'll explain, there are differences in cultures. Now, this is where your Bible studies are important. Are you ready? Good skeptics who read the Bible cover to cover all the time and can quote any part of it. Generally better than most religious people, to be honest, as far as I tend to find. So, do you know what a sin is? If you know what a sin is, you will know that a sin is that which disgusts Yahweh, that which God finds revolting, the pathogens he wants to avoid in your actions. If you don't believe me, Tob and Tab, two Hindu words from the Old Testament, they are things that are ritually unclean or immoral. And they occur a couple of times in the Bible. There is also... Shakats and shakets, that is what Yahweh felt if you ate or even touched unclean animals, including a selfish and pig. Aside, here's my aside, ever wondered why pigs and shellfish are unclean? I know you think it's because there's more disease in them, but it's not. The latest research suggests that there were a group of people on the coast in the Near East, back in the Middle East at the time, who ate pigs. And there were other people in that region who didn't. We never find pig bones or shellfish or any remains in one area, and we do in another. And the area where we don't became 
the ancient Hebrews. So it's called old fashioned. Don't eat foreign muck. That's all it is. Anyway, so that appears quite a lot, quite fairly often in the Bible as well. And then you get Shkitz or Gael. This is the big one. This is important for what's about to come. And this is a wave of deep anger and revulsion caused by idolatry, caused by worshipping a graven image, believing in another god, all that kind of stuff. And that happens, okay, not as much as the ritually unclean or immoral, but kind of tub and tab appear wherever Shkitz and Gael do. They're kind of interlaced together quite often in the text. Now, St. Jerome came along and he needed to translate it into, into Latin. And he said, we don't have all those different words. We basically have two words that fit here, fastidium, from which we get fastidious, which is like being precise and being overly over the top and overly careful, which uh, is more complicated in Rome. But we're not going there now. It's about class differences. Anyway. And another one, abomination, abominatio. Now, abominatio came from the Greeks. It's this thing that's the opposite of desire here, just below desire. As you can see, they're the Greek opposites. And that's how Greek, if anyone wants to screenshot this, that's how Greek emotions worked in the time of Plato and Socrates and so on. Uh, that's particularly Plato's idea, that love and hate are opposites, desire and abomination are opposites, uh, and joy and sorrow. And they're the easy emotions we feel every day. Then when things get tough, hope, despair, courage, fear, and the lone anger kicking. But anyway, we're looking at that question mark. And that question mark is fugatio abominatio, flight or abomination. So the opposite of desire, moving just forward something, like Panskep said, is to either run away from it or to be revolted by it, to be abominated by it. When I looked at early modern texts using uh, some corpus linguistic software that I wrote and couldn't replicate because I completely forgotten Python, um, I found I looked at something like 30,000 texts and I found that the words abomination and abomination, which are just misspellings, it's nothing to do with homonym or anything like that, were found most often next to words about sin and God and uh, idolatry and that sort of thing. They were very moral, religiously moral words. Another word that would appear is fee. Now, fee is an expression. It's like yuck or ugh. And there's also foe and fun and fi. So if you ever read that again, if you ever read Jack and the Beanstalk, don't go foo, fi, fo, fum. Go fee, fi, fo, fum. I smell the blood of an Englishman. And if by any chance you're watching, the guy who came to see us in Edinburgh said, yeah, the English are disgusting when I said that. Thank you very much. Anyway, so that is a, a sound associated with this idea of abomination. But something else that's associated with abomination is witches, early modern witches and the witch craze. To understand why, we have to understand how to become a witch. There are two important factors in most witchcraft. The first is the environment. Like Schechter Singer said, you have to have an environment first. You have to have a, have a context. In this case, the context was one, the Ottoman invasion of Constantinople. It cut off the silk trade. It made a lot of very rich people a little bit less rich, and we all know how they like that. So because they couldn't get their silks and their china very easily, because there was a massive tax to take it through the bulk of the silk road, and taking it the other way around through the north was incredibly hard and incredibly expensive, they set sail for places like, you know, America. Uh, they were thinking they were finding another route to the east, as many of you will know, and they found America instead. 
So they found the whole continent. Now, what that did is that made people very confused because apparently Aristotle and the Bible between them knew everything. But neither of them mentioned this other competent, uh, continent, competent, continent. And I don't include Mormons in this because I don't include Mormons in anything. But they, what's going on that the brightest people in history missed off the planet? I don't get it. Weird. Imagine if we found a city around the back of Mars. It would be a bit, what? Hey, that kind of confusion. There's also a massive war, some of the worst wars in Europe that we've ever known. Per capita, more people call, killed in the First and Second World War put together. Terrible, terrible religious wars. And they were caused by a guy called Martin Luther, who published some uh, theses saying that uh, the Catholic Church was a bit rubbish. And the Catholic Church went, no, we're not. And things broke up. That's the great, most massive oversimplification of history you'll ever, ever hear in your life. So I hope you enjoyed it. But that's what happened. And so people were dying all the time in these terrible wars. There's also a lot of pestilence. Uh, people were starving to death. People, almost every generation will have gone through a period of terrible famine and seen populations fall and rise again afterwards. And there were diseases. The plague was still hanging around. The, the, the third great plague was going through there. You got, you know, um, the great plague of London. All of Europe was getting the plague. We got new things like typhus fever. We got something called the English sweat. And we got the Spanish disease, syphilis, which was a simple disease if ever there was one. And most of these came out of the wars, came out of the contact with people, came out with going to new parts of Africa to wage these wars and other parts of the world to wage these wars and picking up diseases. Because it turns out when you disturb nature, bad things can happen. No reference at all to recent times. So also, to make it worse, we had the printing press that made sure everybody knew that these things were going on. You'd either read it or you'd have it read to you. So what we got here are wars and rumours of wars, the Antichrist on Earth, disease, famine, and the world becoming confusing. Basically, it was genuinely believed in people's minds. I don't say their hearts because that gets me nervous. In people's minds, they absolutely believed that Revelations was coming true in much of Europe. The millenarian uh, preachers were making a fortune on this. It was the big thing. So they were scared. So they looked around for people to blame. Who were the people who were helping the devil take over the world? And they were witches. And they weren't just witches. Most of them were women. Now, this is where the abomination comes in. Firstly, women were believed to be generally um, warmer and wetter because of humoral theory. You could be warm and wet, you could be cold and dry. And so they would want to be cooled down by going to big, strong men, and that made them levacious and sexually active and they wanted sex all the time that was the belief there's a belief that spun on its head recently so there's that women were also apparently to blame for the for the first great sin the apple uh they listened to the serpent um frankly if a snake talked to me i'd do anything it said but yeah they, they were, that was women the preachers all said and also women apparently were more easily tempted by the devil. They were more easily tempted to go because of these two things. The devil could tempt them again. It could offer them sex that they wanted all the time and that will get them into uh, Black Sabbaths and all that. And I, I mean, the old ones, not Ozzy Osbourne. But yeah, uh, they would do all that. Now, the abomination comes in, unfortunately, when it comes to appearance, because the bad news is that being judged by your appearance is not women being judged by their appearance is absolutely nothing new 
So this is by Albert Dura. It's woman riding backwards on a goat, or witch riding backwards on a goat, rather. And as you can see, she's depicted as older, less firm. I mean, I'm less firm, so I've got nothing to talk about. And that was kind of an undesirable woman. They were older. They were usually a widow. They usually didn't have much any money because they had no income. They would beg on the street. If you said no to them, your cow would die. It was obviously her fault. That was one expression of a witch. And that was an abomination. That made you feel abomination towards this thing that clearly was committing um, idolatry because it was a witch. The other were younger women who didn't do as they're told, who didn't behave the way they're supposed to. And this is another Hans Weldon Green, uh, a young woman with dragon. And I'm not sure what's going on there. I don't think I want to know what's going on there. But the idea is she's behaving in a way she shouldn't. So she's an abomination also. She is a revulsion. So here you've got this deep, um, evolved feeling of yuck applied to a very culturally constructed situation causing a terrible, terrible thing to happen, which are the witch crazes. Now, the witch crazes happened between 1560 and 1630. 80% of the witches in Europe were women. It was different in Iceland and in Russia. It was a, pretty much flipped the other way around due to a different sort of Christianity. Um, there are around 110,000 women accused. Just over, Just under half of them were put to death. Not all of them were put to death. It wasn't you accused, you put to death. It was quite a rigorous trial, actually, despite what people think. But so many of them were. It was an atrocity. It was awful. And it was partly due by the fear of the world, of the end of the world, and seeking out that which is morally yuck, that which is an abomination within your religious view. That was the witch trial. So I'm going to end with, does it matter? Now, yes, because that period in history wasn't when the most witch hunts happened. The period in history when the most witch hunts happened is now. Now, a lot of people are subjected to exorcisms that often cost years wages. Often people are ostracized and left to fend for themselves. Uh, often people are beaten, tortured and even executed today in certain parts of the world, in parts of Africa, in parts of Papua New Guinea, all over the world. In, fact, in London, this happens. And, Often, it's kids. Now, what you can see there are two kids who were accused of being witches because they were twins, surrounded by a bunch of African, we'll call them skeptics, but they're people who go and try and rescue them. So around the world, we've got our fellow skeptics doing good, trying to help with this. But it's happening now. So understanding the causes, because it's still a form of revulsion at these poor innocents, frankly, that is driving the modern witch craze. So I think it does matter. And with that... I'll plug my book again and my websites um, on YouTube. I'm now the emotional ape and we do new stuff there and let's have a break and ask me any questions. And welcome back. I hope you're feeling refreshed and ready for a Q and A. So our first question comes from Paul, a.k.a. Particulate, and they ask, if professional actors are good at faking emotions, do you think that gives them an advantage in accurately reading emotions in others? That's a very interesting question. It goes back a long way back to the early uh, psychologists like William James and uh, Wilhelm Wundt and all those people. And um, there was a debate in the early days as to whether emotions were triggered by your expressions 
and you, you know, you pull, you smiled and then you felt happy or whether you felt happy, then you smiled. Uh, massive debate. The answer is yes. Again, you feel happy and you smile. It's part of that construction. It's part of that. You, you get the stimulus in and you know, you're supposed to feel that way and smile. Um, and actors, yeah, it depends who the actor is, I guess. <laughs> Some of them would be able to recognize emotions in others in their own culture very well, but put them in another culture and it all seem odd. It'll seem different. They'll not quite be able to get it. Um, which is you, you sometimes you see that in actors who have crossed from somewhere else to the United States. They kind of stand out because they act differently. Um, and that's often just an emotional thing. Their emotions are expressed in a different way. So you'll watch No Country for Old Men and you'll see the, the, the villain. I can't remember his name, but his acting is amazing, partly because it's kind of weird how he's doing things. And to him, it's probably natural from you know his culture. But it, it gives them kind of an edge. It's cheating, really. No. Um, so yes and no. Probably within their own culture, they're very, very good at spotting it. But outside, not so much. Okay. Um, our <laughs> next question is from Cleo, and she asks, I gather there is evidence that the ability to be easily disgusted comes first before political affiliation. Is that correct? If you mean food disgust, if you mean physical disgust, absolutely. You've, you've become physically disgusted um, within seconds of leaving the womb, possibly slightly before. Um, and that kind of touch discussed because you need it to survive. You can't be eating the wrong thing at any point um, in your life. So it's, it is, that is definitely there as for the political discuss, I suppose you will feel you are taught right and wrong. You are taught somebody's actions are incorrect. And we all have this inbuilt in group out group thing that someone in an out group is behaving in a way that we've been taught. You shouldn't be long before you have any clue who the labor party are. So, you know, that is a learned thing. So, yeah, I guess so, too. Well, I think I think the way I interpret that question is, yeah. like, do people with, like, high disgust sensitivity become extreme, like, political extremists? Probably, yes. Or the political extremists, in, like, does the political extremes increase your disgust sensitivity? Well, it's within the complexities of it, broadly speaking, people with high disgust sensitivities are more likely to be more politically extreme if they're political. You know, yeah. um, you will throw tomato soup at a painting because the way people behave in environmentalism is making you feel really disgusted. Uh, and that's you. I bet they've got high disgust sensitivity, those two girls. I bet if you did something physically horrible, they'd really freak out about it. And I must put my... I won't put anything on it because I might be wrong, but <laughs> that's the case. <laughs> okay. um, our next questions come from Eagle. And Eagle asks, can a human learn a new emotion or is something hardwired from the start? Also, uh, do you think that we create an emotion by giving it a term or just describe something that was already there? In most cases, yes, you can learn new emotions. Uh, the, the core affects are hardwired, but you can be taught something. In fact, in the English language in the past 30 years or so, we've got a new emotion, schadenfreude. And what tends to happen in the studies that show this is if you name an emotion that's actually not within that culture, people will go, yeah, I felt that in the past. I get that. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I know what that means. I know what... Uh, 
taking joy out of someone's misfortune is that yeah i've done that and there's other emotions lots of i can never remember other other cultures emotions when i try to remember them but there's haim which is a welsh one which is a deep feeling of longing for your home and for the way you remember your home and the way home used to be and this kind of passionate and as soon as i tell everyone goes everyone will go yeah, I felt that. I get it. It's very, very quick when you tell someone about one of these emotions. Um, so we can create new emotions and we can create new terms for them for those emotions. It happens all the time. Okay. We also, oh, by the way, we also lose emotions. There are emotions that have gone, like acedia. Acedia used to be one of the deadly sins. We now call it gluttony, but it's not really. Not gluttony, sloth, but it's not really. It's a separation from something that you should feel passionate about and a depression that comes with it so it was quite common in monks in the medieval period who lost their connection with god and would get very mournful about it but we don't really have it anymore but now you do now i've told you about it you'll go yeah i yeah i've had that so (laughs) okay great um our next question comes from anonymous and they ask uh, you mentioned you can't have emotions without a body. Can you expand yeah. on this? Um, you need emotions aren't the. It's like anything. Um, could you feel a pain in your toe without a leg? Well, yes, as it turns out, you can. But emotions are very much about feedback. They're about uh, they're a regulating system. And what generally tends to happen, what makes this c- construction happen, is when the system isn't balanced right to use a very simple phrase but it's when there is no system of stasis but when you're kind of off kilter you'll get this feedback and also a lot of our emotions are expressed are felt because of the release of certain chemicals in certain parts of our body there's a reason the heart is massively associated with uh, pain and things because that's where you feel it you feel it in your stomach there have been graphs done where people paint different emotions in different parts of the body so you f- ex- feel them in the body you don't feel them in the brain uh, the brain processes them now it could be maybe that if you're just a brain in a vat it will have a false illusory feeling just like it might still think it can feel its toe but when you lose a toe, you don't also lose a load of neurochemicals that tell you you've got a toe. You just lose an electrical signal. So I think it's probably more complicated than that. So I think you need a body for that reason. It's it's uh, interoception. It's a two-way thing. Okay, that kind of like, puts me in mind of this um, image to do with some research that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, that I haven't looked deeply at it, so I don't know whether it's li- like how good it is. But it's basically a load of images of like, um almost like heat images of bodies kind of showing where like the blood flows during different emotions like yeah like yeah do do you know much about that research yeah there's really good research there's been a few done with it the the only problem is to tend to base it on the six basic emotions because far too much research still does um, because it's simple, because it's reductionist and a nice, easy way of doing it. There has been some done which are much more complicated, where people are they're basically they they track them uh, in fMRI machines as best they can. Although to be honest, I have a huge problem with studying emotions through an fMRI machine. Been there, done that. They put you in a gown, take everything off you, uh, so you're a little bit exposed. Get you to lay on a cold table. In some cases, strap your head still. 
put you in a machine. The machine goes, then through the headphones, they go, now I'd like to experience emotions as you normally would. And it's, (laughs) yeah, okay. Yeah. (laughs) But, But they have said, right, tell us what you're feeling rather than feed them the emotion. And you get, interesting results from that rather than sort of basing it on this reductionistic. But yeah, it's really interesting when they do that. They've got people paint their own bodies as well as forms of therapy. So draw your emotions on your body using these colours, which is great because people get to express themselves in ways. Great form of art therapy that's out there. I think so what you're saying about um about the emotions and sort of telling somebody to experience yeah. an emotion in a specific situation, it reminds me of some of like bits of um face research that mm-hmm. that gets done and where, where you do that thing where you show somebody expressing an emotion and like the other person has to name it it's yeah. like well how genuine is the emotion that's being expressed that is because obviously you, you get people in and you like you like face forward like it's a um yeah a passport well, photo and look mm-hmm. angry it's like okay well they look they're they're displaying anger but they might not be feeling it yeah. so how good is that image there's an argument that darwin's method of electrocuting people's faces is better because it just creates random faces and then he says what's that whereas the the other thing is not only are you saying to somebody display an anger face but if you look at the pictures they use that were in the slides they're really exaggerated nobody gets angry and goes yes. nobody does that so it's you're asking them to look at an exaggeration of an anger face. It's not even real. There's something called micro expressions that Paul Ekman discovered that are kind of right, but he's wrong about them. And they are emotional expressions that you can't stop yourself from having. And they are culturally dictated, but you can't. They've actually done tests where they got people to look at pictures and told them to express the opposite emotion to the one they should be. So they'd see puppies and they'd have to go, and they'd see a mutilated corpse and have to go, and what happens when you use a very, very fast high-speed camera is they'll see the puppies and they'll go. So there's this little moment <laughs> that you can't control it. Um, some people think they can detect that and become human lie detectors. There's so many video YouTube channels that claim that. But humans' eyes aren't quick enough. You need like a 8,000 frames a second camera to actually catch it. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of faces are it's part of the problem that the faces are so exaggerated and so over the top and they're acted yeah Yeah. okay that actually leads really well on to our next question from andrew in peterborough and they ask if facial expressions are so imprecise at showing us other people's emotions how do we manage to pick them up is it just a question of context it's a few things firstly you learn faces as a baby because your parents pull them and when you make the right gurgling noises at the right time, you realize that face is for that face, is for that thing. You know, when they're smiling at you, you realize that's the time to be happy. And when they're grimacing angrily at you because you've done something wrong, um, you if you smile, they get angrier and think bad things happen. So you learn. It's a bit like learning. It is pretty much like learning language. The same process happens. Um, and that can be slightly. There are lots of faces that do seem to be almost universal, but not entirely. There's a question coming up where I can address that, but I'll leave that for now. But there are, but generally, um, 
you're taught it. Um, and then we learn that and we learn what the right contexts are as we're through development, as we're children as well. We learn that you don't laugh at a funeral unless actually that's not strictly true. Most funerals I've been to are full of joy and laughter at the end because we like to remember the good times after. But you don't, there are things you don't laugh at, things you do smile at, and you get taught that. Um, and that's how you learn the faces, basically as much as anything else and it even works with people who are have poor sight or, or are fully uh, blind people in that when they pull the face the parents will act a certain way so they'll pull the face again even though they can't see it so it gives the illusion that even blind people know what a smiling face is well they don't they don't have to smile because of the language the same way that they learn to speak it's fascinating really <laughs> um our next question comes from um slava ukraini um is there such a thing as face blindness where you can't read emotions at all? Yes. There's another question coming up that I'm going to tie this into uh, about autism. Um, the spectrum, the autistic spectrum is interesting because one of the symptoms of that spectrum is finding it difficult to read people's emotions, to understand them often in context so sometimes people on the spectrum just can't read the faces they can't there's like i don't know what you're trying to express to me here another one is being able to read the faces fine but not getting the contextual element of it and sort of being are you being sarcastic or not a sarcasm is a classic one not getting sarcasm because you have to get the contextual element and things are a bit lit more literal. So there is sort of within people who have, uh, who, who are on the spectrum. Um, and yes, I suspect there are people who can't read them at all. Um, there's another thing linked to this question that I'll get to later. If this question comes up that I saw earlier, but yeah. Uh, so the answer is kind of yes, particularly mostly people on the spectrum sometimes have this issue. Okay. Um, our next question is from Garnet, and they ask, at what age are emotions firmly imprinted? I remember both of my kids ex exhibit exhibiting extreme disgust for broccoli before they were two. Um, they vary. Disgust is a fascinating one, obviously, um, in that physical disgust, particularly taste disgust, happens straight away, like I said, straight away. You don't like broccoli, you don't like brackish flavors you don't like sprouts that have particular chemicals in them that they, we actually have a gene for some of these chemicals that make them stronger and weaker and also as we get older we lose sensitivity to them and lots of other things we're talking about this in the break but i'll say it again <laughs> all this kind of stuff but also um but the actual idea of disgust as a concept particularly morally concept and linked to it doesn't seem to make sense until kids are about eight so they'll find broccoli disgusting, but they'll not understand why that's the same as the bad man until they're about eight. And so that takes a little while to kind of come together as a concept. Um, and we know that because we'll show them pictures of faces and they'll see an anger face and a disgust face and think they're both angry, for example, and things like that. Uh, lots of other things we've done. Um, but happiness seems to come quite early on. Um obviously because it's a very very important thing that you make your child happy and the happiness of the child kicks your oxytocin level up so you continue to make the happiness and that belonging this bond gets stronger um, it's a survival mechanism uh being upset happens very early which is why you get no sleep 
so that's kind of an early emotion um but often the actual feelings will happen the concepts will come later but the concept of happiness the concept of sadness they come quite young they can be preschool but certain other ones like discussed are a bit more harder yeah. conceptually yeah so so it again it's like the emotions yeah. develop and then we learn what those things are called yes and it tends to how to behave and what to do and so on so by the time we're teenagers we it's an instant and then we become teenagers and we forget all that and behave totally differently (laughs) (laughs) um our next question is from andy wilson and he says really interesting talk thank you um is psychopathy a natural variation similar to genetic variation assuming that condition is the absence of emotion interesting thing about psychopathy two things that are very interesting about it one it's not necessarily the absence of emotion in yourself it's the absence of empathy for other people's emotions you can't feel what other people are feeling you have no concept of the emotional mind if you like but psychopaths can get very angry and very sad and very frustrated in themselves um so that's kind of a natural variation. I have actually heard, read papers where people say it's the extreme end of the spectrum. It's like the opposite end. It's sort of that is, you know, where you can't understand at all the context and you can't read anything. So you just accept yourself. And so you end up trying to work through the world more logically. The other thing I must say about psychopaths is I think they get a hard. I think they get it hard because Yes, some of them go off and do terrible things, but most of them live happy, healthy lives as bankers, surgeons and politicians and various other similar jobs where their particular, shall we say, skill set works really well. Now, if I found out my surgeon, for example, was a psychopath, I'd be rather pleased because that means if things go wrong, he's just going to do the job. He's not going to panic. Because he's like, yeah, I've cut him out. I've cut the wrong bit. Oh dear. Um, there we go. Sorted. So you know, they, they they do thrive, but they're not all they're not all mass murderers. Some of them are in political parties. Uh, <laughs> What's the difference? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, um, our next question is from Nadia, um, and she asks, as someone who's having the most delicious cheese that smells abominably. Why are we? Why have we created something that you have to overcome disgust to enjoy? Because humans are really weird, right? Almost everywhere in the world has delicacies, and almost all those delicacies are really revolting to everybody else in the world. Um, what I do sometimes, anyone who's seen me live might have seen me eating insects at one point of this talk, which I couldn't really do because I've run out of them. Um, because... A third of the world's population eats insects every day as a source of protein. They are delicious, funnily enough. They are plentiful. They are incredibly green. They are low in fat and they are high in protein. We should all be eating insects. But a lot of people watching this right now are going, oh, yeah. But believe me, mealworms with a little bit of salt. They're like like a cross between popcorn and pork scratchings. They're amazing. (laughs) Anyway. But we find that revolting. If anybody's ever tried to eat a Scandinavian delicacy, or even just open the tin a little bit like I did and go, I can go there. Or there's Casamuzza cheese, which I think is Portuguese, and it's cheese. You think yours is bad. Uh, Theirs has got the maggots still in it, alive, while you eat it. So we overcome these things. 
um, decide they're delicious at some point. And it all comes down to our ability to desensitize, which is, again, a brilliant thing. Again, I want my surgeon to be desensitized to the nth degree when he opens up my stomach and looks at my guts. Right. You want that. Every medical professional needs to be desensitized to these things. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. But we, as we're raised, we desensitize to certain things. And our local cuisine, our local delicacy is usually one of them. It may be smelly cheese, maggoty cheese, whatever. <laughs> that was, like, I noticed in myself while you were talking about that. Like I've, <laughs> like, I've tried some insects. And so the idea of eating, like, some mealworm, like, fine. But as yeah. soon as you said live maggots in cheese, yeah. like, Nope. nope. <laughs> That's the line for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have another anonymous question. And they ask, they ask, are human emotions much altered by self-perceived status in hierarchy? Often, yes. Class, different classes have or will often have a different, we call them emotional regimes in the field. And it's basically the rules that govern what you feel, where and when and how you express that. So, to give you one example that's a famous example you're a an air steward or stewardess on a first class flight and somebody comes in one of your um passengers comes in and they are obnoxious and rude and horrible you still have to be nice to them you still have to be happy and polite and lovely and it is reported by the stewards that to go back to the first question when they express and I say, get me a pillow. They'll go, I'm happy to do that for you, sir. They will kind of feel happier because they're within the regime and so on. If they don't, they get fired. And that happens with all of culture. We have these regimes. Sometimes these regimes break down. One group over here has had enough of the group over here's regime. A classic example of that is the French Revolution, when the royal emotional regime was very different to the people's emotional regime. They didn't like what they were doing. They thought what they were doing is fine. And so things happened um many heads did roll um also in roman time i mentioned fastidium fastidium is this hierarchy and in roman in the roman period the upper class people what they ate and wore was revolting to all the other classes in roman society and the same was true all the way through the hierarchy um and it's the same with other emotions how they expressed emotions is slightly different so um this idea of being precise and being accurate things being well made that we get from fastidium for fastidious is kind of rooted in the idea that the upper classes were very picky and so they were a bit gross because we're not picky we're poor we'll eat we'll wear whatever and eat whatever and that's proper and at the top they go oh they're horrible because they'll wear whatever and eat whatever we wear picky you know and it's so yes emotions do have a class structure to them very much so that's really interesting that's it, it makes me think a bit about um like social signaling and like how how people kind of signal what group they belong to not yeah. not just to other people in their group but to people in the out group as well yeah yeah. yeah very interesting a status symbol is an act of emotion it's a combination of pride and i guess arrogance and wanting to be liked by someone wanting to be thought better of by people um so yeah it's you know that's why um, you buy a Ferrari if you can. <laughs> um, our next question is another anonymous one. And they ask, um, can you expand on the complications around disgust and right wing politics? Or is that all in the book? 
It's in the book. It's in one of my chapters in the book, uh, so I'll not expand too much. Um, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, is the guy, if you really want to know about this. It's what he studies his whole life. He is a a uh, moral psychologist, and he's done a lot of work. He's the guy who came up with the basics of that poll, the early version of that poll. Is for everybody, an example of how emotions change, what we find disgusting changes over time. Back in 1984, when that poll was first put together, those series of questions, one of the questions asked you if you would be disgusted if you discovered the person sat next to you was homosexual. Now, this is in the height of HIV and all that. Now, that question's not in there anymore, thankfully. But it's a great example of how culture goes. Hang on, what are you talking about? Get rid. No, that's not disgusting. What are you talking about? I don't even, even generations don't even understand why that would be there. Because we move on, we change, our emotions change all the time and how we feel. Um, anyway, I'm getting away from the point again. Um, what was it? Yes, it's in my book. Go for, read my book and read Jonathan Haidt's, any of his papers, really. I forgot what the main book is. I think it's called The Moral Land. No, it's not The Moral Landscape. That's Sam Harris, isn't it? But there is one that talks about it quite a lot. I'll try and remember. Maybe I'll look it up as I think about the next question. Okay. <laughs> um, our next question comes from Jim Bob Thomas. And they say, as a kid, my dad would become angry with me and I would be terrified. But he would always misinterpret it as me smiling or laughing. Is this a common misinterpretation? Uh, no. It's The Righteous Mind, by the way, the book by Jonathan Hick. The Righteous Mind. Okay. Um, no, it's not. Um, I know a lot of people will laugh when they're frightened. And I cry when I'm angry. I don't cry when I'm sad, but I do when I'm angry. Um, and it's just uh, some of this is built in and we do different things. There are some sinister, sinister researchers who think that we learn to smile when we're happy a bit later on in our development than people think. And so when you've got your kid and you're throwing them in the air and they're smiling and giggling, they're absolutely terrified. That's what they actually are. They're going, ah! and they're not smiling really at all. Um, so it's not unusual for that to happen, for people to smile and laugh and reacting that way. Um, with all you know, that phrase, I'll mic that smirk off your face. That's because people tend to smile when they're tense. <laughs> yeah, but it's quite a um, like it. It can be a, a, a sign of being subordinate. Yeah, can't it? Like that kind of like yeah, no, okay, yeah, you're in charge. Yeah. Like, often, as, like I think there's been research um, yeah. looking at like before um, boxing matches or mixed martial arts like fighting, where the two competitors like have that face off thing, and usually the person who cracks and smiles first frequently loses yeah. in the, when it comes to the actual fight it's that kind of like recognition that the other person has dominance in that situation yeah i was just terrified them yeah as yeah. well yeah well yeah. Yeah. you'd be scared because the dominance fear is a from one person another is often based on dominance it's a whole study of fear is a study of in humans is often a study of dominance because it's almost subordinate to you you're not frightened of them mm. unless you're a french royal in the revolution then you might be but <laughs> Yeah. Um, our next question is from Linda Later, and they ask, is there a danger in suppressing emotions, e.g. being told to be happy when you're upset? 
ask the French royal family. Um, <laughs> yes, um, there is an internal danger of suppressing emotions, and that's the cornerstone of a lot of therapy. Saying what emotions have you been suppressing, and how can we get them out and deal with them, and work out why you had them and what caused them, and where you are feeling that way, and then move on from there. Um, suppressed emotions are necessary because we all live in an emotional regime but getting them out is also necessary there's something else in the concept known as an emotional refuge and that's that place you can go and just be yourself and express yourself so to go back to the air steward it's the bar afterwards with the other air steward and stewardesses where i can say i this guy on the plane he was such a jerk you know and have a drink and let it all out um so it's a good idea to find ways to get them out um, yeah. don't scream at your boss every second that you want to, you'll lose your job, but scream at someone, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you have to. Yeah, sorry. That's given me like the mental image of like a goth going to therapy. Like, <laughs> you know what? I've actually been really happy all along. Yeah. <laughs> I've got so many trapped giggles. <laughs> yeah. I'm so annoyed. I wanted to watch a comedian, but they found me. <laughs> 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 and our final question for the night comes from eagle and he asks where do you want to go when they finally give you that big grant that you deserve <laughs> if they ever give me a big grant well i want <sighs> sue is in acne that's all i want i want to find it if if uh fat cakes and hair is more disgusting than actual poo uh to people and stuff like that um which is not most people's idea of a holiday but it was mine if not, I'll go to the uh, I'll go to the Micronesia and spend a week on a beautiful island if they force me to. <laughs> uh, the things we do for science. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. That was a really enjoyable Q and A, and obviously a fantastic talk. Uh, thanks again, and hopefully see you soon. Bye. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.